Nice skin. Thank you. That's sweet. How'd you get it? Well, uh, mostly genetics, I think. I'm pretty lucky. I have, I have naturally dewy skin. Listen up, Neutrogena. You know you can't go around looking like that. The rules are clear. And another thing, you can't hack the NPC avatars. No, sir. It screws up the mission load, Screws and it up. makes the game look bad. Horrible! Yeah. I got like 5% of that. Lose the skin! I lose, how am I supposed to get rid of my skin? Take it off, man. Just take it off. What are you doing? What? Seriously. The whole thing, the face, the how? outfit, everything. Ditch it. If you don't, we're gonna kill you. Why? And we're gonna keep killing you. Still why? Until we do find out who you are, and then we're gonna ban you for okay. life. No, no, okay, I, I want to comply. I just find the order of those threats very confusing. Somebody's about to get shot. Light them off. You're listening to Tongue Benders. Sound Designers Podcast. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be your host for today. I'm very excited for this conversation we're about to have, so we're simply going to jump right into it. Today we're going to talk to three members of the sound team from the new film, Free Guy. The majority of the film takes place in an open world online game within its constructed reality. And then suddenly a non-playable character becomes self-aware and his actions begin a surprising chain of events. Joining us today are supervising sound editor and sound effects re-recording mixer, Craig Hennigan. Craig has worked on some of my favorite series and films, including Roma, Stranger Things, and Deadpool. Welcome to Tonebenders, Craig. It's great to have you aboard. Great. Thank you, Tim. Glad to be here. Excellent. And joining us from New Zealand, we have Ryan Cole. Ryan was the dialogue supervisor on Free Guy. His past credits include Miss Juneteenth, Brightburn, and also Stranger Things. Nice to meet you, Ryan. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? Yeah, thanks for having us. No problem. And finally joining us is Paul Massey. Paul was previously on Tonebenders to talk about his work on Ford vs. Ferrari on episode 116. He is a nine-time Oscar nominee for films like Legends of the Fall, The Martian, Bohemian Rhapsody. He was the dialogue and re-recording mixer on Free Guy. Great to talk to you again, Paul. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tim. Great to talk to you also. Thanks for having us. Okay, let's get down into Free Guy. Let's talk about chaos. Okay, because a lot of this film has a lot of chaos in it. In a normal film, when you have a simple scene of a walk and talk down a street while two characters are on their way to work, it's a fairly simple sound job. This film, during their walk and talk, there's helicopters crashing into buildings, tank battles, people blowing up bank heists. It's pure chaos around them. And we're supposed to hear every word they're saying as if it's just a normal conversation. How do you even begin to construct a scene like this for sound? when it seems like an impossible task. Craig, do you want to start us off on that? It's really about background details, right? Like it's not about sort of just obliterating the whole scene with a bunch of stuff. It's about sort of picking your battles, obviously listening to what the dialogue's doing, what the story is. Just looking for opportunities, maybe in between a line of dialogue, maybe the rhythm of what they're talking about or the rhythm of the dialogue and sort of riffing off of that. Um, Sorry, you got to forgive me. It's been, it's been, when did we finish this mix, Paul? Like because of COVID and it stuff. It seems like been about a while. four years it's ago. Almost a year ago, I think, actually. Let me back up. Sorry, Tim. So basically when I'm constructing a scene, you know, especially with, with something where you want to convey a lot of things going on in the background, because essentially you are in a video game and you're, you're sort of seeing something in the sort of mid background or the deep background. The idea is just to sort of pick your spots in between some dialogue, listening sort of the rhythm of what, you know, what the scene's about and sort of just looking for opportunities to sort of tell a quick sonic story. Um, there's a lot of sirens 
and a lot of sort of police sort of activity, but that kind of got boring pretty quickly. Um, so we started putting, there's like a really interesting chainsaw in one of the scenes as you walk by and you just sort of hear it rev and it sort of goes off screen quickly. There's gunshots, there's people screaming, you know, ideally at the beginning of the movie, we don't really know. And Guy, Guy isn't fully um, sentient yet. He's not, he hasn't realized what he is yet. So there's a little bit more chaos going on. There's rockets, you know, firing into cars. There's explosions. There's all these sort of like things, like you mentioned, the helicopters. It was just really about setting up that world that's kind of a busy world that's full of life um, so that we can juxtapose when we go into the real world um, that it's sort of like dull, for lack of a better way to describe it. Paul, how did you react when you first saw these scenes that you were going to have to tackle? Because we were essentially inside a video game, Craig was allowed a, and his team were allowed a, an awful lot of license to, to come up with sort of constant action or highlight action as, as needed, um, far more than if it was just a, a normal live action, purely live action drama shoot, which was great because you can add an awful lot of detail, a lot of color, a lot of transients when, when you can bob and weave around dialogue. I mean, clearly we had to concentrate on which dialogue was essential to hear for the story and which dialogue was going to be, you know, a secondary character off in the distance or, um, or even throw away from the principal characters, which, which doesn't happen very often. But when it does, we could, we could sit on it a little bit. And then we had to pick our battles with um, sound effects and music, just um, weaving around them. Uh, often, you know, I'd use a lot of compression on dialogue to try and sit above something that had to exist loud um, in the effects world or, or had to be really driven hard by, by the score from Christoph. So, I mean, there were a few scenes that were really challenging that way, like they're escaping in a car and the, and the buildings are closing in on them. You needed that constant level of, um, of effects accentuation from the car itself, from the suspension bumps, from the buildings themselves rumbling away. And yet you had to hear that dialogue. So there were a few areas where we were able to also move off stage dialogue to try and work around the, um, the sound effects highlights that we needed better. But of course, you know, you had to, in that sequence itself, it had to build to a climactic, will they make it or will they not make it? Craig had to keep the pressure on there for, for sound effects. It was a challenge for sure, but uh, we're really happy with the way it, sh- it turned out. Ryan, was there any practical effects in the dialogue tracks that you were cleaning out or was it all just vis effects? No, it was, I mean, we had like the explosion on the street. I feel like when Millie crossed the street might have been a practical, but otherwise for the most part, we were just cleaning up just regular production. There might've been some wind machines and that sort of thing. Um, there's a fair amount of music that they play on set to kind of get everyone in the mood that we cut around, but they usually cut it out before you know, they say action or right when they say action, but it was, it was pretty much, yeah, a lot, because it was a busy city, there was a lot of production to clean up because you see all the cars there. Those were all not added. That big truck when Buddy and Guy turned the first corner was the bane of our existence for a while. And we moved that around a lot. Was there much ADR in this film? Yeah, there was a fair amount of ADR. I mean, ADR got tricky because we were in COVID, right? There was a fair amount of lines that Ryan would send Sean or Dean Zimmerman, our picture editor, and we'd get them on that side of things and cut them in really quickly if they worked quality-wise. I feel like we played a lot of production for most of it. 
maybe some of the off-screen jokes were ADR and obviously all the loop group and little added bits there where you see the guys in the background, but it was for the most part, it was a lot of production. I just have to mention that Jim Brookshire was our ADR supervisor. Exactly. Ryan was with me all the way from the beginning of the edit and we did all attempts together and stuff. And then Jim, as we got closer to the final, sorry, we got closer to sort of prepping for mix, we we brought Jim in and he sort of dealt with group, obviously, in any sort of ADR lines that the guys wanted to pick up or technical stuff. So Ryan and Craig, you both work together on Stranger Things, correct? Yep, correct. we sure do. Yeah. Was Stranger Things the first time you worked together or have you been working together for a long time? Ryan um, worked at Fox for a long time with, with Andy Nelson. Sorry, Ryan, I'm speaking for yourself. You can you can jump in. Yeah, no, I was a recordist on the, one of the mix stages across the hall from Paul when it was 20th Century Fox. Um, and then I think the first show I worked on you with Craig was actually another Sean movie, uh, Date Night. And then I transitioned from recordist into editorial following in my wife's footsteps. And then I think I was a little bit on Wheelman. And then I was on Darkest Minds with Dean Zimmerman, who then recommended me, I believe, to Craig for Stranger Things. That's how it went. <laughs> so after many, many episodes of Stranger Things in this film, are you guys in each other's heads now? Do you, can you just communicate <laughs> effortlessly? Uh, a little bit. I mean, it's like you were mentioning before we sort of got going just about how you know people are isolated right obviously with the world situation but even as a as a film crews are smaller and smaller uh budgets are smaller i tend to have a philosophy if i can obviously if i can keep as many people working as possible i will um but ideally i have a core group um and ryan's a big part of that core editorial team and the idea there is that if i can get dean to sort of be contacting ryan directly about a line of dialogue or something they have a problem with then i don't have to get in the middle of it i don't have to be I'm supervising in some sense, but I'm not, I don't want to handhold every single, you know, situation, what, what comes up. So the fact is, is, you know, Dean and Ryan can kind of get along and do something that I don't have to sort of get in the middle of it and retranslate what Dean wants. It's sort of right from the horse's mouth. And, you know, we are pretty isolated nowadays and, you know, it just takes an extra level of communication, takes an extra level of just sort of commitment. You just got to be heads up. You just got to sort of like, you know, it's either texting or email or phone calls or Zoom meetings quickly, you know. Um, and so that's kind of why I sort of depend on someone like Ryan, because he doesn't need handholding every single day and every single moment. I can let him kind of go do his thing. We have sort of a working relationship with all these different shows we worked on, so he sort of knows how we're going to do temp mixes. We sort of know sort of each goalpost, sort of like we know what we need to accomplish, I guess, for lack of a better way to describe it, you know, and sort of big picture sort of idea. And Dean is very, very supportive of sound and very supportive of us getting on early. He generally doesn't sound out. On Free Guy, he didn't sound out the whole film. They they had cut some things, but it was really like... You know, here's the general gist of what we're going for and then have at it, you know. So speaking of communication with your director and picture editor, I can imagine with Free Guy, there would be situations where a new version of picture would show up and suddenly a new thing would be there that you didn't even know was going to be there before. Pretty much. Uh, like, how, how how do you set up communication to try and uh, cut those off before they happen? I don't know. I mean, it's honestly, sometimes you can do as much as you want that way and then it still fucking changes you know so it's just i don't know it's just like a heads up sort of thing you know from dean there was a bunch in this film that sort of came in and then went away and and 
a lot of it was to do with sort of other the other MP, NP, NPCs that they were sort of having, you know, in the background. And something, like you said, something would show up for a few versions and then it would disappear. There was some really awesome stuff that was in really, really early on. But then I think once the movie starts to gel and then once the visual effects start to really sort of gel together, some of the things that were in the background were kind of distracting, kind of made it almost too jokey or too video gamey, for lack of a better way to describe it. Like there was this fine line of like, yeah, we're in a video game, but it's actually Guy's life, you know? And so we had to sort of think about it in that sensibility. It wasn't like every single opportunity to put in a cool sound of, of a video game-esque type thing was always warranted, you know? It was always something of, of sort of always being sort of rooted in what Guy's feeling or what Guy's doing and what the story's doing. And then it sort of just sort of translated out from that, you know? This is a question that I last asked when Paul was on the podcast before. In terms of Ford versus Ferrari, we talked about the idea of ear fatigue, that you can't have a race just at full volume the entire time. And the same thing happens in Free Guy. There are these scenes where there's chaos happening, but then there's these moments where they go inside and the interiors within the game seem to be much quieter than the exteriors. Obviously, story-wise and where they go, like when they go into Molotov's stash house or Revenge of Ben Button's stash house, there's not a lot going on in those rooms. So, you know, for me to kind of, you know, I did try a few times like, oh, I can do some cooler synth tones or some cooler drones or some video gamey sort of type throbs or pulses. And it kind of just kind of called, you know, attraction to itself. And it was sort of like not, it didn't really need it, you know, um, and then when we got into the the mix, you know, Paul would just yell at me, turn it down, turn it down. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Paul and I have a really, we've mixed a number of movies together and we have this really great handoff of, of back and forth. And, and the great thing about working with Paul is, is I get to sit and watch a master at work with dialogue and music. You know, when you're in a final mix with a guy like Paul and you're like just watching him, how he's sort of weaving music in and around or looking for the different the different instruments in the score and sort of like he's designing the scene himself with the dialogue and the music. Um, so I just sort of get to listen to that while he's building that all up before I even get to do an effects pass of, of things. And then once I sort of do my pass and get all my ducks in a row, then we actually go through it together and then we'll sort of look for handoff moments. We'll look for moments in story where we can be quieter. We're always looking for opportunities to sort of quiet it down and make it intimate. I think it just makes you, it makes you lean in. It makes you understand the story better. And it allows the loud moments to sort of pop without actually having to be extraneously loud, you know, for lack of a better way to describe it. Wouldn't you agree, Paul? Actually, one thing you're not aware of, Craig, is I've got a master fader for all your effects sitting un- underneath the console. So, you know, when you think you're getting louder, I'm actually just writing you a little you're actually, bit. You're actually turning it down. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's perfect. I'm perfect. And you're like, yeah, you're right. It is perfect. <laughs> Thanks, Craig. No, I mean, I, I think a lot of it is, you know, hats off to Dean and, and Sean for the, for the editing and the pacing of the film because this film could have easily been wall-to-wall action with, with very little break. And it's really nice to have those pauses in, in the actual storytelling. And, and even in repeated scenes, like where we go back into the bank and, and the same event that we saw, you know, slightly earlier on, um, is repeating itself, but you know the audience has already heard that, so we can we can take the focus off of that ambush possibly, and we can focus more internally on what guys thinking um, and the conversations that are going on, which is which is nice. It's a it's a little respite 
that you weren't able to do the first time you presented the scene. And then, yeah, like Craig says, I'm, I mean, I, I go through and do a dialogue and music pass, and I really try to open up the score according to what we know the effects are going to have to do also. We do an initial pass where we listen to everything, and of course it's a bit of a, a train wreck. So, but, but from that, we can gain information as to where does the score need to lead, where does the sound effects need to lead, where, where does everything need to suppress a little bit to be internal to the story that's going on. And, and then we build our individual passes... You know, there'd be sections where I'd pull certain instruments quite dramatically in order to give the illusion that the score's still continuing on under action. But that gives Craig the headroom to come through with the impact he needs. And then I can rejoin again later and hopefully the audience doesn't notice that I've done that to the score. Tricks like that, just to try and not make it a complete bombardment from top to tail. So, Craig, when Paul is doing his music and dialogue pass, just to give people an idea of how it works on a mix stage with multiple mixers that don't get to do that on a daily basis, what are you doing while Paul's doing his pass? Making the tea. I go off and fire up the kettle. <laughs> Which he does yeah. very well. Right. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I like to really mix my own material. By the time I get to the final mix, I'm hopefully thinking purely creatively. Yes, there are last-minute visual effects that are coming in and stuff like that. But, you know, Sean and Dean, they're super organized and they are just dialed in by the time they get to their final mix, you know. So there's not there's not a whole lot of gotchus coming out. So what that allows me to do is actually sit and sort of maybe take in the movie in a, in a different sort of aspect. You know, I, I try really hard to take off my sound designer hat and put on my mixer hat and then I can kind of sit there and a lot of times I just shut off my, you know, shut off my Pro Tools screens and I'll just sort of, you know, watch the film while Paul's sort of working, you know. And then I kind of just earmark certain things I want to sort of maybe highlight or work on or think about. It's really just about using the time in that aspect in a creative way, right? You know, I mean, you get on a big dub stage and it's expensive and, and there's all this pressure of like, go, go, go. Paul and I try really hard to sort of like slow it down and not, and I don't mean, you know, slowing it down to sort of drag the day out. I mean, to slow time down so that you're, you're thinking quantitatively and, and creatively with the sort of choices that you're making so that by the time when we actually do our pass together, it actually, a lot of times it actually falls together pretty quickly because I've spent a lot of time in the room. Paul quite often is in there while I'm doing my effects pass. Quite often he'll sort of peel away from the console a little bit, but he's sort of in the room, you know, drifting, maybe sitting on the back wall. Um, but it's that sort of relationship that just sort of allows us to sort of like be around loud sounds all day, but not getting pummeled by loud sounds directly in front of it, if that sort of makes sense, you know, and, and sort of like, so you're soaking up all these sort of ideas and stuff and you're just sort of like waiting patiently to sort of do your pass but while you're waiting you you are you know thinking about what the music's doing and like oh that's a really cool thing there I don't really need my low end here anymore I can take all my low end rumbles out because Paul's got stuff there I think for me that's sort of the idea um you know at the same time I have I usually have a, a couple guys with me Ryan's usually busy you know cutting ads and sweeteners and stuff I'll have a couple guys in the design department with me sort of like looking at new visual effects that are coming in sort of a adjusting any sort of sounds that we maybe need, maybe something that's not quite working, any sweeteners or additions. So that's kind of, you know, I think that's pretty much right, Paul, the day-to-day. -day. It may seem like we're taking our time on our individual passes, but that's more like 
where we can actually do our microscopic kind of work on our own and back forward and back and forward and not interrupt the other person. The other person is observing and, as Craig said, taking note of what they're about to do as well. So by the time we get to the, our, our final pass together, it's often three times real-time running time. It's, it's pretty quick because we've already made those decisions. We've already determined who should be playing what elements at what time. So that falls together very fast, and then we're ready for full input from Dean and Sean and anyone else who wants to give it, which is great. It also allows us to, give, to have an overview. While we're doing our microscopic passes, we're obviously doing that. But then when we come to our second pass where we're working together, it's an overview of the reel, which is great because that's how the audience is going to see it for the first time. It's heads up on the big screen, not, on, not into the minutiae. And, and I should add, the great thing about, again, Sean and Dean, is they let us have our time. If we looked at it like, okay, we're going to have two days per reel, for instance, right, which is, which is pretty much in the neighborhood of where it is, we generally get the first day on our own, you know. Usually Dean and Sean are off color timing or dealing with visual effects or something else, but they also understand that they can come in as the sort of fresh, like they're not in the minutia. They're not hearing me go over a gunshot 50 times or Paul working on a score from the ground up. So they're not, you know, so they're getting the sensibility of like, let's let the guys do their thing. And then, you know, they know where everything is. They, you know, Sean's gone to the scoring. Quite often we'll do a faders up with Dean and we'll get sort of like general ideas from him if there's anything we got to look out for. Doing a faders up is also really beneficial for any missing dialogue or odd words or an ADR line that might be not working. And Dean can kind of flag those sort of things or Sean can. But then they go away and they let us do our thing. And that sort of takes a, a layer of pressure off of us in terms of like having, you know, a director right behind you and you kind of, you you know, your shoulders sort of go up a little bit and you kind of, ah, like you're just white knuckling from the <laughs> beginning of the day, right? You know, and we've been on movies that, you know, you've had a director that sits right beside you and wants to be there. And that's awesome as well. I, I mean, I, I kind of like both, right? And you just got to kind of read what the director's all about and what they want to do. And sometimes having a director there every single step of the way is amazing and can be completely awesome. And then there's other other times where I feel like because of who that person is, maybe it's better for them to sort of see a macro mixed version of this and then they can kind of highlight kind of what they're interested in fixing. And then if we got to dig in, if we've gone down a road, you know, that doesn't work, they'll tell us right away. They have, you know, directors have no no qualm in saying, hey, this isn't working. And then, you know, we'll back up and then we're like, okay. And then we'll, we'll dig in. Ryan, we're going to get to you in a second. So okay. sit tight for more second. I got a bunch of questions for you. That's fine. How do you guys deal with people talking in the room? You're trying to mix. Someone's having a conversation in the back of the room. What's your way of uh, kind of politely getting the room back to what it's supposed to be doing? Most of the time, anyone having a conversation behind Craig trying to work or behind me trying to work is, is pretty distracting. So no, most of the time that happens offline or outside of the stage, I think. I mean, there will be conversations where everyone's involved, but to try and get through something that you're really concentrating on as a mixer or a sound designer and have someone just chatting away about how dinner was last <laughs> night is so distracting. It really is. We've all been there, though. <laughs> I just zip down to the loudest sequence and just, like, play it over and over everyone and lives. over. And then everyone just, later, like, 30 seconds later, usually everyone gets the sound. But joking. no one wanted to be on the stage on this one because you had to wear a mask if you were out there, so everyone was in their own little room because this is one of the first COVID shows we did. The equivalent to, to, to Craig's gunshot is I just take a, a line of ADR and put it on a loop and start working on it. 
And after a while, they go, the door that, the door that, the door that, the door that, and they're just like, I'm done, I'm out of here. Well played. So, Ryan, let's talk to you for a moment. Sure. Uh, there's a key sequence in the film. I'm going to try and explain this to you without giving away what it is if anyone hasn't seen the film yet, though. But uh, Ryan Reynolds uh, plays two characters in the movie at one point. How did you go about tackling having both voices going at the same time? Well, I believe Ryan was on set doing a lot of the lines. You know, we had the we had the stunt double there, but then Ryan would feed him the lines and then Ryan would record them later. And we also had this system called the egg where Ryan could record where they recorded his face in order to put his face on the actor's body. And we just used that. And Ryan, there wasn't really I mean, it was just we didn't do like any special pitching to make him sound bigger or tougher. He just did the voice and it all really worked. Oh. That one was not very, as far as high tech goes. I mean, it's high tech in what they had to do and record him offline and fa- you know, all the facial capture. But otherwise, we didn't do any special processing. I mean, Paul maybe EQ'd him to give him a little beef to his voice, but otherwise, he didn't want to deepen it because that was kind of the joke as well. You know, he wasn't a monster. He was just kind of a different version of Ryan. Paul, did you beef him up? We beefed him up a little bit, but not, you know, like like Ryan says, we didn't go crazy because they didn't want it to sound like a out-of-body experience, you know? <laughs> so, Ryan, what was the toughest scene for you when you got the dialogue tracks? What was the hardest to clean up for you? The city stuff on the city streets was pretty tough. Tom Williams was our production mixer and he did a great job. But, you know, there's only so much you can do with a big truck driving by. You know what I mean? And, and same with um, the park at the end. They, I think they invited every single bird possible onto the set that day. <laughs> it's a really delicate scene, and there's, there may be one line of ADR in there, possibly two. It really worked. Paul did a great job cleaning it up. And I think for me and for giving it to Paul, I think the less I did so that Paul wasn't dealing with stuff that sounded all kind of fuzzy and underwater to begin with. Because there's going to, I mean, at the end of the day, there's going to be music, there's going to be background. So if I'm sitting in a vacuum cleaning things up, it's like, oh, it's too noisy in here. Then you put it up on a stage. It actually totally sounds fine with a little, you know, city tone in it. And do you find that that's just experience to know that? Or how do you go about finding where that line is? The first pass I do of anything, I cut the whole scene and get it balanced noisy like get it all working as it would be if i didn't have isotope or any of that so and then i keep a copy of that and then usually i go and clean it up and realize i've taken it too far and go back to the original um and sometimes i'll give um and i think i did it at one point with paul for that last scene i might have given him a couple denoise options whereas like one's pretty heavy and one's like just a little bit and i think we usually went with just a little bit but it's usually taking it too far and being like oh that sounds ugly or you know going and having lunch and coming back and being like oh what did i do and going back to the original like, no this is you know this is actually fine or because we worked on this for so long craig had his i had craig stems to balance against which was great so i could just chuck in the effects and the bgs and the music track and hear where it's all sitting and be like this is going to be fine it doesn't matter that there's seagulls circling them on the boom mic or um, or any or a car horn because it's a city like you know you spend all these times sometimes on shows and you're the interior of a car and they're like oh we got to get rid of that sound and then you bring it to the stage and we just put the sound of the interior of a car back I put in. it back in what yeah. did I just do all that stupid stuff and it's and if it sounds good and it doesn't sound like someone kind of pushing up and down on the back of the car to make them bump then it's fine you know you get that realism and as soon as you start getting rid of that editorially, you start losing frequencies that you really notice when you go back to the original. And what's the communication like between Ryan and Paul ahead of time in terms of deciding how to deliver tracks, how much denoising you should do? Do you talk at all? Or yeah. Paul, do you want to take that? 
Yeah, I mean, Ryan was great in that he, he would, you know, alert me weeks or months ahead of when I was getting involved seriously with pre-dubs, you know, say this scene, this scene, this scene, can you check them out? And he'd send me a portion of the film with the original production tracks and just see how much I could clean up and how much I was worried about. And then we'd talk about it, obviously, and, and Ryan and Craig would present to, to Dean and Sean options as to, you know, whether we should ADR it or not with my involvement also sometimes. And this is weeks ahead of, you know, when I was truly on board the show. I rely a lot on, on uh, my Harrison console for the, for the sort of plug-in noise reduction work that I do, uh, along with Isotope and such. So I think most of the time, Ryan and I settled on areas where he had done a preliminary, as he said, a couple of options of Isotope. And we'd generally go with the lighter version, which was useful, but we didn't want to dig too far at that moment. And then once I can put it up against Craig's effects on the stage... And through my pre-dubs, um, I'll use the Harrison plugins or toys to try and get the bulk of that noise out and get it to a point where it's acceptable. I must say the park sequence that Ryan's referring to was pretty much on edge. But, you know, as, as always, you know, performance is king. And so if the performance is there, we have to make it work. And we were on a very fine line of, um, is that okay, Sean? <laughs> And if he said, no, can you clean that up a bit more? We'd be like, oh, no, <laughs> here we go, because it would start to dig into the dialogue, you know. But, um, you know, performance is king. And if people can understand the story and not get distracted by the city noises on that particular production track, then I think we have to go with it. Not so much for that scene particularly, but I have to give Ryan Reynolds' commitment to, to dialogue and commitment to, to his filmmaking and to his films is just is at such a high level and a high bar. He really, really cares to the point. I remember doing a temp. We did a temp, right? Ryan and Dean was with us. The line, I don't know what line it was, but it wasn't anything. It was just not working. And Dean was like, don't worry, I'll get Ryan to do that. And we're like, what? He literally texts Ryan, this is the line I need. And within five minutes, it was back as a voice to text. Dean airdropped it over to Ryan's phone and Ryan dropped it in. And five minutes later, it was in our temp mix. Now, granted, it's an iPhone line and, and all those things that come with it. But I think when you're dealing with an actor that's that committed and that available, um, it just makes the movie better. And we did that. There were so many things going on in this film that were born of those ideas and those situations where Dean was like, oh, shit, I'm going to get him to say this. Or Sean would do it. And I'm going to, and then it would just come back. And it was like, this is fantastic. It's like, it's almost like real time sort of writing, <laughs> you know, kind of idea. It was, it was really interesting. I, I think we did a little bit of that on Deadpool. Actually, we probably did a lot of it on Deadpool because he's got a mask on. So he could kind of say anything. When Paul makes Deadpool, he was challenged with quality, voice quality behind the mask was something that, I felt, I know in the attempts that, you know, I'd done were, were problematic, but like I said, in this film, they were using it for creative purposes. Like, you know, and, uh, I think he has a little iPhone mic, right, Ryan? There's a lot of iPhone lines that made it into the film because he's using a high quality mic and he's so good at matching. And even without Dean sending him a reference, he knows he's seen the movie so many times and he was a producer, right? So he knows the line so well, he knows 
how to say it to match it right in. He was really good at that. It was rad. It was really, yeah. it was really awesome to be part of something like that. Was like with him. He was, you know, because he's on the other side of the country, you know, yeah. and it's just like, bam, what? That just came. What? It's just like awesome, you know. Incredibly enthusiastic. If he felt like it was going to make the film better, he was always available. It was great. Yeah, really great. I'm glad you brought up enthusiasm because the main character that Ryan Reynolds plays within the movie is kind of endlessly positive at the beginning of the film. Even though he's his bank is being robbed every day, he's getting shot at, he gets punched a couple times, he's just relentlessly happy throughout it all. But then as he realizes this world he's living in is more sinister than he thinks, his POV on the world starts to change. And I'm wondering if you use sound to kind of help the audience realize that change in perspective. About a month and a half out, a lot of the visuals for all the signs at the bank and all, all the sort of cryons and stuff sort of showing up and you were able to fine tune some of the sound design. I don't know if you notice, it's kind of a subtext, but all the, there's a lot of happy sort of like major key type beeps and blips and stuff in the movie. And then when the, everything's going to hell at the end of the film, a lot of that digital sound, all that sort of digital stuff when the world is sort of falling apart is more sort of in a, in a more of aggressive, distorted sort of minor key. It's, it's sort of a subtle thing. But that all really worked with the music, which is what which I was very, very happy with. I think, you know, we we got past the first reel and that kind of set us on a really good footing. That whole opening sequence with the voiceover and you want to hear all these tiny sound effects underneath it. It took a, it took a little bit to get that sequence under our belt. Initially, we did a first temp, right, Ryan? I think we did the first one we did, which was like eight months prior there was no voiceover at the beginning. No voiceover at all. No. It was like, this is rad. It's going to be just full on music and sound effects. Action. Just big action movie. It was like a <laughs> giant action movie. And it was like, just like, it was fucking great. Right. You know? And then, but, it, but story-wise and sort of like what the film's about was sort of confusing to people. So then they were like, okay, well, we're going to do this voiceover welcome to Free City and sort of set up the narrative of what, what we're going to get into. But of course, they still want to hear all the music and they still want to hear as many sound effects as they can underneath all those sort of things. Um, you know, so that, that I think once we kind of got that scene dialed in and that reel dialed in, that kind of really just set the foot for the world. It was really about making, making the video game world feel as one thing and then the real world feel as a completely other thing. And I think we really achieved that, you know. Well, that contrast really adds to the movie and the humor of it and the contrast to the two worlds, like the auditory contrast, even, you know, the big sweeping music into the kiss is one of the funniest parts in the whole film where it cuts to, you know, Millie in a room completely silent. And I think those sort of auditory contrasts really added to it all. One thing that I really liked, it's a video game world, so you can get away with it. But when he first puts on the sunglasses, all of a sudden he's hearing things, even though he put on glasses. Yep. <laughs> but that's when all of the telemetry and uh, UI sound effects come into play. And uh, that added another whole level of work, I'm sure, for you guys. Initially, there was a bit of like how, what are the rules or what aren't the rules as to what we're doing and not doing with the glasses on, the glasses off, why is he hearing some things? Why isn't he hearing other things? And ultimately it was like, you know, you know, they had a little bit of, I think they had the, the army girl walking by and they had this sort of like turret guns coming up and the jets flying by, but they didn't have any of the cryons and any of the sort of bank things. They didn't have any of these other sort of little things. So it just became this idea of like world on, world off, world on. 
and it works really comedically as well. Like it works on so many different levels and it actually, I think it allows an audience member to actually have a little bit of fun and actually know that we're not taking ourselves too seriously with like what we're trying to do with the world sonically and, and you, you can actually engage into it. And then just after that moment, when he, he grabs the briefcase with the red cross on it, then that wicked song kicks in and then he, and then he realizes what, his life's all about. And then we're just off to the races. We're off to like a really fun moment. And that's kind of something that, you know, we just kind of went with kind of what made sense rhythmically, what made sense from an instinct, what made sense sonically. And that's kind of where a lot of those beeps are sort of in a major key and a lot in their happier beeps and fun, more of a fun sort of sound. Um, so that just sort of really set up the world and it stayed out of the way of the music. Some of those higher kind of telemetry and higher UI beeps and stuff, all that stuff stays higher up. So frequency wise, you know, Paul and I aren't having to fight sort of like certain things. And that's always, again, I think from a mixing and a sound design standpoint, inevitably you show up at a mix and there's always, you know, too much stuff, you know, and I don't mean too much stuff in a, in a negative sense. I mean, too much stuff as like, okay, we have a lot of great things that now we can kind of work through and figure out what's going to work and not work. I feel as a sound designer, if I can kind of get ahead of that a little bit and sort of like go, okay, I'm going to stay in this world over here. Cause I know the music is sort of doing this over here. And even if it's temp music, I know they're probably going to score something in that similar vein. It just makes your life a little bit easier. You know, when you're final mixing, you're not having to reach for frequencies. You're not having to cut a bunch of stuff out and scramble, you know? What you said fun about 10 times in that answer. And that's what I left the movie feeling like it's just a fun movie sounds almost strange to say, but big blockbusters aren't always fun. Dark heroes and anti-heroes and stuff are kind of the thing that's been happening for a long time. And this film, I was just smiling through the whole movie and I had a blast watching it. The sound that you guys did played a big role in that. So thanks for giving me a good night out. That's great. That's Sean, you know, his philosophy of life and his, he just really is that guy. He, he is that. And him and Ryan together, I, I mean, it's like a marriage made in, in sort of film heaven. Those two guys are, I won't be surprised in the next few years that they make a bunch more of, bunch more films together or projects together. They really have, family is a big thing to both of them. Honesty and, and sort of integrity and, and sort of positivity, you know, in the world. And because you are right, there are a lot of blockbusters out there that are, they're, they're great, but they, they, they yeah. can trend on the dark, the darker side of things. And, and, uh, and that's not Sean and, you know, and that's not who he is. And it's probably why he hasn't really gone down those roads with sort of any of his movies, I would say, you know, it's always been pretty upbeat and likes to wield the action movie sword, you know, and he, we did this on real steel as well, where it was, you know, it was an action giant robots, boxing and fighting, but there was always at the heart of it, there was always this really, you know, heartfelt story of a father and son and the romantic story in Free Guy. Those are always at the root of what Sean Sean is. And, and it comes through in his filmmaking. And it's it's kind of like that with the whole the whole team that he uses as well. Because he is that person. He is very optimistic. He's very fun. He's very intellectual and very smart, obviously, but but he keeps things light when they need to be light. And and I think he encourages that in his team knowing that everyone's going to get their job done properly. And, and that, it conveys in the film. It just comes through in the film. And, and I agree, I think after we've watched it countless times during the mix process and, and the QC and everything, 
it's still a fun film. You come out thinking, wow, that's a great family fun film. I, I want to go and watch that in the summer. Well, thank you very much for talking with me about it today. As I said, I had a great time watching the film. Hopefully we can have you all again on uh, sometime in the future when you have future projects to talk about. Yeah, thank you, Tim. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate it, man. Film Bitters is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. If you are interested in more pro-audio-related content, stay tuned to hear what other members of the Audio Podcast Alliance are releasing. To learn more and find links to other shows similar to Tonebenders, go to audiopodcast.org. Immersive Audio Podcast, a podcast that explores all things immersive audio. We talk to thought leaders covering the art, science, and business of this fast-changing industry. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast app. Hi, everyone. This is Sam Hughes, host of the Sound Architect podcast, where I interview audio professionals around the world about their projects, their careers, and their advice. I've spoken to some of the most amazing sound designers on the top games, TV shows, and movies of our time. Our guests also include some of the biggest composers of our generation and some of the most amazing voice actors I've ever spoken to. Catch the Sound Architect podcast wherever you listen to your podcast or at our website www.thesoundarchitect.co.uk. See you there.